Uh, how many of you in the last 14 years or so have been to the National Mall in Washington, D.C.? You know, lot, lots of us, about half of us or so. And if you've been there in the last 13 or 14 years, there's all the beautiful monuments there. It's sacred ground to me. We have all the monuments to great presidents. We have the monuments to our fallen heroes in war. And now there is a monument that is erected to a U.S. citizen, something I don't think that's ever happened before at the National Mall. And the monument is in honor of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, someone who would call himself an average Joe, uh, but who stood for peace and for freedom and for equality in an exceptional way that transformed and is an important part of the story of our country. And so it brings tears to my eyes when I see it, especially when I read the quotes that are on the wall, because as a practitioner of this teaching, they so exemplify what we um, believe. Quotes like, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Or, I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity equality, and freedom for their spirits. Or, it is not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for it. We must concentrate not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but on the positive affirmation of peace. I love having that on the sacred ground of the United States Capitol, this vision for peace for ourselves and for all of humanity. And King is known for his famous speeches, especially there at the National Mall. But he's also, to me, one of the great spiritual minds of the 20th century. And you really get this, not just from reading his speeches or watching them, but from his incredible sermons. He had a sermon entitled, A Tough Mind and a Tender Heart where he talks about the importance of discernment and critical thinking and being tough-minded, but to never match that up with being hard-hearted. And he talks about the importance of being tender-hearted, but to never match that up with being soft-minded. Thus, live your life with a tough mind and a tender heart. Kind of brilliant. He had a sermon entitled The Drum Major Instinct, where he invites us to consider that at the heart of racism or all discrimination perhaps isn't a superiority complex, but a deep-seated inferiority complex. And that each of us has the opportunity to look in our own consciousness and to do the work of dispelling any part of ourselves that would push someone down in order to lift ourselves up. He has a sermon called A Knock at Midnight where he speaks to this great spiritual phenomenon in your life where you find yourself at the darkest moment, a starless sky, and you begin to feel and manifest and feel a part of a great dawn becoming. King's famous favorite, I apologize, sermon was called The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life. And I believe it was his favorite sermon because most of us ministers all have a sermon that we kind of wrote early in our career that we were able to evolve and build over time. And I think for King, as the civil rights movement got going, the sermon got deeper and deeper and more profound. And the first dimension of a complete life that he talks about is the length of life, which he defines as rational self-interest and self-love, just like Dr. Michelle was talking to us about 
last week, the importance of self-love. And so I'd ask you, how are you at loving yourself? How are you at taking good care of yourself, not just internally, but in how you show up in the world? Because as we teach in our philosophy, how we think about ourselves doesn't just depend on our experience of who we are, but it defines our relationships. It defines our work. It defines how we show up and experience our world. I love what the author Jack Foster said. He said, what you think about yourself is the single most important factor in your success. Think about that for a second. What you think about yourself is the single most important factor in your success. Your personality, your actions, how you get along with others, how you perform at work, your feelings, your beliefs, your dedication, your aspirations, even your talents and abilities are affected, no, controlled by your self-image. You act like the kind of person you imagine yourself to be. It's as simple as that. Self-image determines what you are and how you perform, not effort or will, self-image. So pay attention to how you see yourself and how that influences how you let other people see you. It's one thing to love yourself. It's, a one, it's another thing to love yourself openly and in public. It's one thing to know deep down that you're a beautiful expression of God. It's another thing to practice your beauty. That's the thing about beauty for me. It's not just a quality of life. Properly understood, it's a spiritual practice. How many of us have engaged in the spiritual practice of being beautiful? Being the beautiful expression that you are. This is best exemplified in Maya Angelou's famous poem, Phenomenal Woman. It's in the fire in my eyes and the flash of my teeth, the swing in my waist, (laughs) the joy in my feet. I'm a woman phenomenally. And I would keep reading that, but... I might get overexpressive and that might be a little weird for you all, but you get, get the point. Own your beauty and be it and express it. And this was a, an essential part of, of King's message where he articulates loudly to his audience, which is mostly made up of, of black men and women. And, and he declares black is beautiful. Black is beautiful. It's not saying that other colors aren't beautiful or this isn't beautiful or that isn't beautiful, but, but black is beautiful. And it was important for King. He recognized that if the civil rights struggle was to be achieved, not only did white hate have to be overcome, but also any sort of apathy in any individuals, any part of ourselves that would lack dignity or think that someone was better than we are. There was a study by a famous study by Kenneth Clark done in the 1940s where he brought together young white and black children boys and girls and had them play with a black and white doll and many of us know the results of this study not only did the majority of the children want to play with the white doll but when asked which one was more special or more beautiful the majority of the children would choose the white doll and strangely when the children were asked which one do you most identify with the majority would pick the white doll as well. What a, what a terrible result of the evils of segregation, of the lack of integration and understanding that a child might look in the mirror and not know how precious and how beautiful they are. And so at the heart of King's message is that for all of us to recognize that we're all different and unique from one another, but to be the best of who we are. 
He said that in this world there are Fords and there are Cadillacs. Not everyone can be a Cadillac. Sometimes you've got to be a Ford, but recognize there are things that a Ford can do that a Cadillac could never do. He would say that if it's your lot in life to sweep streets, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, that if it's your lot in life to shine shoes, may your tombstone read, here lies a great person who shined shoes well. And he would quote the famous poem from Douglas Malick. If you can't be a pine on the top of the hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the hill. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or fail. Be the best of whatever you are. And that's what we're all called to do with rational self-interest and self-love. Be the best of who you are. And how many of us limit ourselves from being our best because of a negative self-image or low self-esteem or because we think so-and-so is prettier or better looking than we are or so-and-so can talk better than we do or whatever it may be. Step into being the best of who you are. And the great thing about that is you move from the first dimension of self-love into the dimension of service to others, what King calls the breath of life. See, it's one thing just to love yourself and to like yourself and take care of yourself, but that's only one dimension of life. And if you get stuck there, you become kind of like narcissists looking into the pond. When we really love ourselves, when we really understand ourselves, we begin to see that we are not alone but that we are indeed wrapped in what King would call a mutual thread of destiny. If King was here today, he would want to remind us that before you walked into the doors of Mile High Church this morning, that you more than likely were dependent on about half the world. From the sponge or the shampoo you used in the shower to the coffee beans or the tea leaves that you consumed, to the bread you may have eaten, to the clothes that you put on your back, to the car that you got into and all the makers of the parts that go into them. Even to get into this door, we've related with so much of the world. And to be able to recognize our unity in it is to begin to be of service to others. As Joseph Campbell once said, the second law of life is survival. The first law that we usually forget is that we are one. And when we remember that, we get that call to be of service to other people in a more incredible way. I I think a mistake sometimes some of us make when we look back at that important time of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s is that although we all recognize that the goal was always the same, greater freedom and equality, that the strategies were different towards getting there. And that some of these civil rights leaders, as much as they respected each other, sometimes they didn't like each other very much either. You had different threads, different paths. You had more of a, a separatist path that might have been exemplified by Malcolm X before the last year of his life when he began to change his mind that, that said that, that blacks and whites shouldn't be integrated that we should be separate, and that sometimes violence is is necessary. From my place of privilege today, that's hard for me to understand, but when I try to put on the shoes of someone in the time, I, I understand. This is very different from the approach of the Christian Southern Leadership Conference, exemplified by Martin Luther King Jr., who took on Gandhian nonviolence. 
This idea that the way to become more one is to use the power of love and to bring forth the conscience, the better angels of the nature in all human beings so to seek to live in greater equality. If you were protesting for civil rights in Birmingham in the 1960s, you might have signed the, the following pledge. We have a, a screenshot of it. It's hard to see, but I'll read it. And I just think about how powerful and yet how challenging this is. And I think of young people signing up for this. One, meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. Two, remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Isn't that powerful? Walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Boy, have we forgotten those sometimes, haven't we? Seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. And follow the directions of the movement and the captain on a demonstration. And we can interpret those to our own religious science language. But they're so powerful and and invite you to consider what it would be to practice that just in your life every day. Right? Talk about forgetting on Tuesday. It's hard to keep that, that going. Living from that place of love. And there's a story of a young man who pledged this, made this pledge, who tells his father that he's going to go and protest in a very dangerous situation. And his father forbids him and says, no, you can't go. We have to keep you safe. Rational self-interest. And the kid says, I don't care if you ground me to my room or how you punish me. I'm going to that protest because not only do I want freedom for me, I want it for you and for mama as well. And the father gives his blessing. And that's that movement that happens from when we move from just our own self-interest to realizing that we are a part of something greater. And what does it mean for each of us? to care for others. King talks about it in his drum major instinct sermon that, that Jesus gave us a new norm for greatness. That if you want to be wonderful, great. If you want to come in first, great. But if you really want to be great, whoever is around you, you become their servant. You seek to uplift them, to inspire them, to lift them up to a greater degree of greatness. And there's a third thread to this important civil rights time that's not as talked about as much today and it's it's a legal thread so young powerful lawyers men and women uh, exemplified by by the NAACP at the time and in particular by the character of Thurgood Marshall who would become the first black supreme court justice and these were individuals who sought to use the law to help heal and create unity and freedom and equality for individuals. No matter what thread you most associate or enjoy, uh, I, I can't help but think what great patriots these young men and women were because they took a constitution that they saw as hurting them, as belittling them, in some cases murdering them and people that looked like them, and yet they saw in this very constitution the very key to bring about freedom, this kind of divine contradiction. And Marshall studied all the constitutions of the world looking for a better one. He even later in his life would uh, help write the Constitution of Kenya. And he found in that U.S. Constitution that if applied correctly and rightly in all areas, that it could lead to a greater sense of unity. And he believed wholeheartedly that the way to bring about equality was integration, 
and he would meet clients, and he would build them up, and ultimately he found the clients that would become and create the case of board versus, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. And in this, you have to show harm. And he would take that study that I was talking about earlier from Clark to show that the impact that segregation was having on all citizens, but especially the black citizens. And the Supreme Court, in a rare unanimous decision, helped begin the long, slow process that we're still experiencing today of becoming an integrated, unified society. And that when we accomplish that, nothing else is unaccomplishable to step into that greatness of who we are. Marshall did much of the legal work, but King brought that spiritual heart and morality and philosophy. And he shares, a man has not begun to live until he can rise above the narrow confines of his own individual concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. The length of life, rational self-interest and self-love, the breadth of life, serving a power greater than yourself. Those are two dimensions. And yet there's a third, a third dimension that King would define as the reach for God, that mountaintop that Dr. Patty was praying about so beautifully. It's that relationship to develop a faith that there is a presence and power for good in this universe that we can use. And when we give ourselves to it, it can use us in incredible and powerful ways. King would argue that there are two types of atheists, as he argues in the sermon. There's the, practical, there's the, the atheist who just comes to the conclusion that there's no God and that's it. But then there's this also this practical atheist who affirms the existence of God with his lips and yet denies God with his life. You know, sometimes I go weeks being a practical atheist and don't even know it, right? You know, what does that mean for you to let the sacred into every area of your life. It's easy for me to experience here on Sundays with all of you. It's hard when I'm alone and feeling down on myself. It's easy when I remember the truth of my relationships and why I'm here. It's hard when I'm in an argument with someone I love. But that's our charge, is to let God in, is to let the sacred in. There is a divine healing presence in the universe. There is a divine peace. Let it in. There's a divine grace and a divine wisdom. Let it in. There's a healing and there's a forgiveness. And there's restoration. And there's simply just that space where we know that all is well. That there's a divine presence right where we are. Let it in. Can you let it in? Where in your life, where in your heart are you keeping it out? Because when we begin to let that divine life in, we get that third dimension of a complete life, and it really starts moving. We can begin to hold ourselves in wholeness, even when we're feeling full up in our brokenness. And we begin to allow that recognition that we do not live our lives alone, but that there is always a divine spirit with us. Martin Luther King's probably most famous and important civil rights battle was the first one that he ever had. He had become a young minister and took a pulpit in Alabama. And that's right around the time that Rosa Parks refused to get off of a bus. And he was elected the leader of a group that organized a boycott in Montgomery, Alabama to boycott the buses there. 
And at first, King was hopeful that maybe 30% of the citizens would participate. But when 90% of them participated, he knew he was onto something. And yet it was his first experience with this, and it was very hard for him. It was the first time that he would get phone calls in the middle of the night filled with uh, terrible epithets towards him and threats. It's the first time that he would be speaking to a group and he'd hear whispers that, I don't know if this is the right leader for us. And on one particular evening, always there at these Monday meetings they would have was a woman named Sister Pollard who was a spiritual mentor to King. And he gave a talk there to the group and he came off the stage and Sister Pollard called him over and she said, what's wrong with you? You, 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 you're, You're not here tonight. You didn't speak well tonight. What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fine, Sister Pollard. I'm just fine. No, no, I can tell something's off. Is it, is it the whites? Did they threaten to do something to you? No, 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 that's not it. Well, let me tell you something. Even if we aren't with you here, God is with you. God is with you. And it wasn't just the words. There was something in that experience for King where he would take those words, God is with you, wherever he went in his life. He kept this knowing when his house was bombed twice. He kept this knowing when he was stabbed and almost murdered. I believe he kept this going all, this, all through the time up to when he was viciously and terribly taken from this earth. And yet, what is more important to know than that sense that there is a divine power, no matter what the challenge, no matter the darkness, no matter the difficulty, that has that spirit within us that can transcend any limits of the human experience to experience a greater oneness with the divine. And how important it is for each of us to know not only how love-worthy we are, but how divine-worthy we are. And that the only thing that keeps us from that greater peace, that greater love, that greater harmony, that greater wisdom, that greater abundance isn't God, but it's our own self-rejection. It's our own inability to know that we are worthy enough to receive those divine gifts in our lives and to unite them and thread them in the different areas of life. King says, and he sounds just like our founder to me when he says these things. He says, you may not be able to define God in philosophical terms. Men through the ages have tried to talk about him. Plato said that he was the architectonic good. Aristotle called him the unmoved mover. Hegel called him the absolute whole. Then there was a man named Paul Tillich who called him being itself. We don't need to know all of these high-sounding terms. Maybe we have to know him and discover him in another way. One day you ought to rise up and say, I know him because he's a lily of the valley. And then somewhere you ought to just reach out and say, he's my everything. He's my mother and my father. He's my sister and my brother. He's a friend to the friendless. This is the God of the universe. And if you believe in him and worship him, something will happen in your life. You will smile when others around you are crying This is the power of God. And what does it mean for each of us to become even that much more open to what the power of divinity can do in our minds, in our bodies, in our relationships, and in our social world that needs so much more understanding that the divine is with all and that we together cultivate a greater harmony for ourselves and for humankind. So going into prayer this morning, I invite any of our prayer practitioners who'd like to stand to join me in doing so. As we move into this time of prayer, perhaps we can check in on where we are in relationship with the three dimensions 
of a complete life. Am I sincerely and authentically not just loving myself, but being the love that I am in my life? Am I treating myself with compassion? And am I caring with respect for the beautiful body vessel that I've been given? Am I open to receiving the good that the universe has in mind for me by not rejecting it, but by accepting it as the very birthright of my soul and my spirit? And taking all this good and this love, am I willing to recognize that I have gifts to share? That as as Alan Watts once described, I have a kind of vitamin C for the world. Something to give just through my presence. You may not be able to articulate what that gift is, but only know that there is always something or someone in front of you in which to practice, to be that light, to uplift, to make seen, and to behold the sacred in action. And can I commit to improving my relationship with the sacred, whatever name I choose to use for it? It is infinite love. It is infinite life. It is the infinite breaking through of any limited thinking to remind me, to remind us that divine truth is not something fixed in stone but is ever fluid and creative, that first cause of spirit ready to manifest and make a demonstration in our lives today that can bring incredible healing, a greater degree of depth and meaning, and a solid joy that carries us through whatever days may be ahead. Giving thanks for the three dimensions of a complete life, may we allow themselves to be born in the seabed of our hearts and to grow and to flower in incredible ways. We give thanks to that divine presence and how it shows up every day. And so it is.